Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I feel like I said to you just uh, before we started recording, like, let's just talk. I felt like there should be some like nice like Sesame Street music, like start playing, like, let's talk. <laughs> I have a random question for you. Yes, ma'am. What's your middle name? Anne. Nancy Ann Rommelman. Eh. <laughs> Yeah. Is Anne the most common middle name yes, of absolutely. all? Absolutely. A and it's A N N. Uh I will say my daughter's middle name is May M A E. And since she now i there are a lot of people with the middle name M A E. Vina May. Oh, really? Sally May. It's I think it might be more um locational. I think it's a bit maybe more like Southern or Western, maybe. May is a middle name. It seems to me that 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 I've noticed it. And you I find middle names so fascinating because they're like a secret identity. You know, they're like a name, like a little secret door in your name that you didn't know that yep. somebody had. Now, Anne is one of those that's just kind of like an add-on name, like Nancy Anne. Also, by the way, so Anne is a derivative of Nancy. So it's like, okay. Oh, really? So it's like Nancy uh, yeah. Nancy. Yeah, Nancy Nancy or Anne Anne. I, I personally think, I mean, first of all, I... I think this is maybe the first time in my life I've actually thought about my middle name. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just kind of boring. You know, like some people have like these awesome, uh, um, um, here with Matt Welch and his grandmother's name was Aleph Viola Sherry. Ooh, Viola is a is good one. Beautiful. So beautiful. Um, uh, I love the name Octavia. I think that's a oh, me too. Beautiful name. I think it's so beautiful too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and your um, your your middle name, Sarah Hepla. Okay, so I do have an unusual middle name. It's L Y S, which is Lise. Lise. Oh, Lise. 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 Um, Lise. That's pretty. Is that the like fleur de lis? Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah, my mom was trying to keep the initials that she has, which are SLH. Okay. And she wanted a one-syllable middle name. And so she just sort of riffed and found Lise. Um, because she didn't want – Sarah Lee would have been the obvious one. Yeah, you would have been – a breakfast treat. You would have been so yummy. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's also – you know how when parents are mad or their kids or they're being stern, they're like, Nancy Ann – Sarah Lee's is really pretty. It's like so it really nice. pretty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So. Have you ever thought about changing your name, by the way? Well, I've never thought about changing it, but I did do something in college. It was freshman year, and then you go to college, and like you literally say your name, what's your name? About like a thousand times. And I was just so bored. Someone's like, What's your name? I'm like Courtney. And I just No way. Yes, yes, yes. And I must have done it in a class, this one English class. I don't even remember why. Well, because I was an idiot. And um, there were people all through college till senior year that called me Courtney. This one guy, Mike Whalen, who I knew, like when we were graduating, he's like, Courtney, it's been so great to know you. I'm like, sounds great, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Names are so funny. And then I know some people that got to college and then they just switched to their middle name or they switched to maybe they had been called by their middle name and now they were their first name. I just I find this stuff really fascinating um, when people just kind of change the filters on their name, you know, I knew a girl uh, in high school. Uh, I guess her name was Laura can't remember her last name, but she just literally changed her first name later on. Just like decided she wanted a different first name. I think that's interesting. Oh I no, mean, I think it's fascinating. That's commitment. Um, 
When I was in seventh grade and I wanted to be a writer, this was like the height of my realizing as a young person that I was going to be uh, a a professional writer. I was obsessed with Stephen King and I was also obsessed with Hollywood. And I knew that Heppola was like a non-starter, you know, like people were not going to be able to pronounce it. So I started signing my name, Sarah Houston. Oh, but that's kind of cool, though. You know, Pam Houston, right? The writer. Well, I didn't then. No, of course not. I didn't know her until college. Crazy stories about her, which we won't get into. Uh, No. I, when I went to Hollywood to, you know, with my, my uh, destiny to become a movie star, you know, Nancy Rommelman is not, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I was trying to think like, should I change it? Which I never actually considered. But my friend was like, well, you could be like Nancy Rome. And I'm like, yeah, I can just see myself on the Tonight Show when I'm like 60 going, and here's Nancy Rome. So no, I Nancy never. Nancy Rome. I awful. can't it's get so, that one. That sounds so like a awful. full sentence. And it's, it's, um, it's awful. Um, uh, yeah. And then when I was getting married, um, I've already, I was already a journalist for 20 years, obviously I have a byline and my husband's last name is Johnson. And I was like, Nancy Johnson. I just, no. I just couldn't do it. No, it, it sounds no. like and Betty Crocker. I just, yeah, exactly. yeah, totally. No. Well, and now it's so different. You know, I don't think that like, I, I wouldn't want a different name because even though my last name is, is slightly difficult, well, it is difficult it's to pronounce for a lot of people. Um, it's distinctive. There are no other Heppelas right. in publishing uh, yet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that the same thing with Rommelman is, is it's super yeah. cool. You're the only Rommelman that yeah. I know. So I think this is a difference between like the late 20th century, mid 20th century, people are trying to assimilate more. Um, now the, the, you know, the status is on being more distinctive and you have a lot of, of very distinctive names. I think people in other eras that would have changed their name. Um, down. right. Like, well, we, that was, we don't have as many Marilyn Monroe's or, well, that, yeah, I guess that was like a really big thing in Hollywood. Like you went and they gave you a name and that was the name that yeah, you they used. They gave you a makeover well, and then they did, they changed everything about, it was like the Swan Hollywood version. Yeah, Hollywood version. But also, I mean, we, we have to, our, our grandparents, great grandparents, great, great grandparents were coming over from other countries and with completely unpronounceable names. You oh, know? yeah. And I think so the original thing at, is like El- Heppenemeyer or something at, like at that. At Ellis Island, like they were like, okay, you're, you're Heppola. Like we can't pronounce the other thing. Maybe it's even in a, in a language that is not, you know, that you don't recognize the letters. So it was, and I think that that's gone. It's not, we don't have to like, there isn't the, the, the rush to assimilate that there was. Exactly. Did you know that the O-L-A suffix is often one that was placed on Finnish names? I did not. So did it's not. a, it, it's very, there's a, there's a couple of other uh you know, ethnicities that did this as well. But, but like I went to a Finnish graveyard once in, in, oh, wow. In in UP, the the upper peninsula of Michigan is very, very heavily Finnish. And I went to a, to a Finnish graveyard. And so it was just all OLA, all of it, like as you walked through it. And uh, by the way, my grandmother's name, like her maiden name was uh, originally Ahola, Ahola. A-hola. That would be so that I would really, be di- that would be difficult. <laughs> That'd be difficult. And then I got, but then I then I think they they uh, let me see if I remember this now. Sarah. But they shortened it to Aho, and I was like, that is not better. You're not Aho. Is not you're not. It's not helping. <laughs> editor in, in Portland, Ellen Fag, F A G G, and I said to her, I was oh, like, that's a tough draw. I was like, I was like that might have been. It must have been kind of hard for you growing up. She's like, 
not as hard as for my five brothers. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was tough. Well, my daughter's last name is Samson, S-A-M-P-S-O-N, and she is dead set that when and if she has children, they're having her last name. And, you know, her beloved's like, well, maybe. And she's like, nope. She is absolutely set on it. She's like, my kids are having my last name. I was like, do it. You know, yeah. why not? You know, I have two ends on the end of Rommelman, which is never, it's very rarely do people remember to do that. I see my byline all the time with they, they drop yeah. the second end, but what are you going to do? So, um, so I am up here uh, in beautiful upstate New York, a little bit outside of Rhinebeck. And I've been here for more than a week. I have to say, it's not too bad. It is not too bad. Oh, it looks really nice. I'll bet that's... Uh, yeah. People can go follow me on uh, Instagram. It's N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M. And really, every picture is just every picture is just beautiful sunsets. And yeah, it's, it's really, very bucolic it's nice. up there. It is. it is. It's really nice. And we're, Lots of you know, green pastures. Uh, yeah. We actually took a, a walk yesterday, kind of like uh, bushwhacked through this field and then went over there's a Wilcox Park which wouldn't mean anybody anything to practically anyone and we got there and man we found the coolest like okay you're in like you know it's part of a park but it's very very vert it's like it's a forest right and all of a sudden we come across this enormous three-tiered platform made of wood I mean this is an incredible undertaking. You could have like a wedding for 70 people there. Oh, and so this cool. incredible fire pit that's like better than anything out of Dwell Magazine made out of rocks. And then this lookout tower. And we have no idea. We have zero idea who built this, who it's for, what it's there for. But we just found it. I'm like, we're going to go back. And anyway, when we had to come back, we had to literally bushwhack through like a half a mile of all kinds of like scratches all over my body. And then like doing tick checks and finding ticks yeah. on people's legs. And anyway, we're we're good. But it has been um, extremely nice and able to get some work done up here. Speaking of that, um, we haven't really spoken for a while. I had a nice feature over on uh, Barry Weiss's uh, Barry Weiss. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, my brain <laughs> is 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 um, her site Common Sense. And then the other day, uh, this guy who was in it, a subject of one of the people, he's like, "So New York Post today, huh?" And I was like, "What?" It was in the New York Post two days ago, so that was nice um, to see that. Uh, I just read. Can I say something? Yeah. Um, I just read that piece on inflation, and this is mm-hmm. about how high prices are affecting small, small business businesses. owners. Yeah. Yep, yep. And this is a—I'm going to be honest with you. This is a topic that I was like, I'm not—I'm not that interested in it. And sure. um, I just have to tell you, I love the way you tell a story. This is Aww, such baby. a fun, and um, you know, it felt like I was sort of like, uh jetting around different places of in New York. You know, you're in different parts of New York talking to people and you're able to just kind of summon their little world so quickly. And so, um, and, and I just, well, here's the thing is I just, I love meeting new people and talking to uh, new people exactly. and learning about of their course. worlds. And I think that you're extremely good at doing that in a really engaging way that just doesn't feel weighted down by the, you know, what is inflation and is oh, it yeah. happening well, and you know, stagflation and I, I, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when they asked me to write the piece, Peter Savodnik, who is over there working with Common Sense, he's one of the most beautiful writers. You should go follow him on um, on Twitter. I think it's at Peter Savodnik, S-A-V-O-D. Anyway, you'll find, I'll put a link. Um, 
they're like, yeah, well, could you write about like talk to small business owners and talk about inflation? And I'm like, literally, I think you and I probably talked about it privately. I'm like, what the fuck do I know about inflation? I mean, I, I kind of know what it is, but like, I am definitely not the person to, to do this. Like there's a, almost everybody in the world is smarter at this than I am. But then I was like, oh no, it's the people. I mean, you and I, it is my great privilege Again, I could almost get choked up about this to talk to people about their lives. I mean, this is just like, I, I can't believe I get to do this as a job. So thank you for liking it. Really, it's all them. You just go in and if you are genuinely curious about what's going on here and you have like some observational powers, like in the deli, the bodega, you know, noticing this woman that I usually see sleeping around the corner on the sidewalk who's in there in the morning in a very surprisingly unsoiled evening gown. Like, all right, you know, you can, this is part of a world. So you're able to just sort of give it to the reader. So um, that was really nice. I'm going to work on another piece for them. And um, um, that was nice. Anyway, able to do some work up here, which is because that the, has to be done. One of the mistakes I've made as a journalist is thinking that I need to have the answers when I really have to have the questions. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. You know, I will get really hard, you know, down on myself. I don't know anything. I, 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 I'm not smart enough. And and the thing is, is that like so much of the, what do I want to say? Like the release from that anxiety comes from reaching out to people, listening, asking questions, asking as many questions as you can, to, you know, just trying to remain curious, open finding out as much as you can. So, so also, anyway, this is a problem I continue to have in my, you know, in my writing. I continue to get down on myself. I don't know enough. I don't know what I'm talking well, about. The answer is, oh, for me, the answer is always interviewing and talking to more people and researching. So, you know, it's also what we would call shoe leather reporting, right? It's, which is not necessarily done for a lot of things today, but I definitely get that feeling. I have a piece that I'm not going to mention now because it's not done yet, but you know, I'm working on a, on a big piece that I was asked to do. And of course I'm like, well, I'm not smart enough to write this. And then I'm realizing, okay, Nancy, they asked you to write it because they like the way you write or the way you think right. or the way you're approaching something. So, okay, that I can do obviously. But, um, I was telling, um, Matt last night that when I did the Gacy piece, the John Wayne Gacy piece. And it was originally supposed to go in Details Magazine. And then the editor left and he went to Vogue and the new editor didn't even read it, just killed it. And I'm dragging around this piece. You know, I've written it. It's my first feature. And I, I it sounds horrible, but I really felt like I was dragging around a dead body trying to place it. And my my brother's girlfriend at the time said to me, you know, Nancy, you are not giving the, you're not given this opportunity in order to fail. And I was like, oh, I've thought of that many, many, many times. An opportunity comes your way, especially if someone comes to you saying, hey, I think you're going to be interesting at this. Yes, of course we don't know enough. We will never know enough. But that's what kind of keeps us working and striving. But, you know, you're, you have the opportunity and you know that you're going to do it or you're going to do your best. And, um, I mean, I've, in my entire career, I think I've had, I think I've had three stories killed that, that like, just the editors didn't like them and what I did. And, you know, I've written thousands of stories. So, you know, I think we have a pretty yeah. good track record, Sarah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to drop in right here something that I was just going to do as like a little ad later on. I'm going to talk about a media site uh, that I think is doing the opposite right now, which I uh -oh. think, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They, these people deserve it. Um, so there used to be a site called Gawker, right? I don't know when it started, 20 years ago, something like that. 
started in 2001 or two, because okay. I can remember the email going out to a group of writers that I was friends with. And we were like, the, the pitch for it at the time was like, it's a site that covers the media. And we were like, who wants to read about that? Oh, right. So it was Nick Denton. Uh, was that it? And it was like, I hadn't really interfaced with a lot, but of course I knew what it was. And it was like, kind of jackassy, kind of provocative, very smart, very funny, very caustic. I don't think you wanted to be in its sights, but I don't remember what six, seven, eight years, seven years ago, um, they got sued by Hulk Hogan. For or Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Working, uh, I, I think he, he financed right. the, the Hulk Hogan right. lawsuit. And, uh, and, and they lost and they went out of business. So Gawker went out of business. All right. And so. that was for covering a sex tape, uh, of Hulk. between it was, it was like, what was it? Hulk Hogan and Bubba the Love Sponge's <laughs> wife. It was the strangest, the strangest details. It was such a, it was such a like, what? you know, weird place, hill to die on, um, but anyway, yeah, that was that happened about mm, five, yeah, it's five or six years ago. So a little a little insider baseball here. Uh, the guy that wound up like sort of with the the husk of um, Gawker as a property of his was a guy uh, Brian Goldberg. He owns a whole bunch of other uh, media sites that are incredibly successful, and we wound up knowing him socially for various reasons. And um, he actually. <laughs> He once said to Matt and me, he's like, you guys, you want to, um, you want to just like, uh, you want to go over and take over Gawker? Matt and I are like, uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so we didn't. And then he asked again, like six months later, we're like, no, definitely not. Anyway, Gawker was reawakened from the dead. Like, I don't know, what, nine months ago, 10 months ago, something like that. Something like that. And, um, it has now... As far as I'm concerned, and again, I don't check on Gawker. Like, there are certain sites that drive me a little bananas with their uh, sort of deliberate brattiness, like the Daily Beast can do that. I've definitely gotten mm -hmm. down on the Daily Beast for, like, running stories like the whole Donald McNeil thing, which was really, really just – it was – it was it was journalism with a mission, and the mission was to spread the word of activist the activist class within the New York Times and get Donald McNeil, who'd been there for forty five years, a way longer story. I'll put some links to it out, and I found that to be really really gross. Well, Gawker seems to literally just be like the they're just pooping in the pool. I do not see anything that they are doing that is remunerative, that is um, that is soul satisfying, that is like provocative in a way that makes you think or even gets you angry in a way that you're like, well, okay, I didn't look at it that way. Uh, the couple of examples I can think of, one is when um, Joan Didion died. I'm a very big fan of Didion's. Many people are. There's a reason why she's important to the culture. And um, they wrote some piece like, oh yeah, cry those tears, white women, for this, you know, this dead, this dead white lady. I'm like, wow, great. Um, the body's not cold yet. And it was like, what's the point? What was the point of that story? Do you remember this? No, I didn't see it. I mean, okay. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, Gawker was hugely influential in the aughts, and um, it really changed a lot of the ways that online media did business. I mean, you know, it it pushed, I think, a lot of different publications to get 
to get kind of more biting with their headlines. Um, a lot of us lived in fear of being written about on Gawker. Um, and they and they employed a, a lot of really, really smart writers. OK, I'm not going to take that away from them. And they had a lot of vibrancy and voice, yep. which I think yep. in some ways, <clears throat> as online media was transitioning from the older, you know, printed way of doing business to a voicier online way of doing business. This was a really important transition that I think a lot of the Gawker writers led the way in doing. Yeah. And um, and it was it was it, it was pretty delicious to read is the thing. Juicy. Um juicy and and the people there were really plugged in. Um but I will say, you know, after it went away, I, I sort of one of the things I observed was like a lot of that energy, a lot of that energy at hitting at at places, hitting at publications has moved to Twitter. So Twitter mm-hmm. is already serving the role of what Gawker used to do, which was to keep the media class on its toes. In fact, I mean, I would argue that Twitter does way too much of that. I mean, there is just so much energy expended on on complaining and arguing about other people's pieces that you don't like. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, so now Gawker launches again and I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really even, I, I kind of just don't pay attention to it. But one of the things that I think is unfortunate about this model is that it takes a lot of young, really precociously talented writers and, you know, basically sets them up to be to just knock things down. Like, in other words, I don't see a lot of creation on this site. And I think that all of us who are artistic or creative by nature deal with our insecurities in different ways. Um, and and I understand, but I, do, but I don't think it's a very healthy model to make the way that you deal with your own insecurities and your own frustrations at, at not having more of a career or whatever, to be knocking down other people's work. Um, I, you know, I, I just, it's, it's, to me, it's not a healthy model for, for criticism. And, and, and and I think also the pieces that I've read have not been particularly insightful. I mean, you know, the thing about old Gawker was that a lot of the pieces I read like taught me um, about about certain dynamics I might not have known. There was a certain inside inside uh, you know behind the velvet rope feel to it, and I don't get that as much anymore. Well, think about. You know, if you the best editors you've worked with who've or the best publications you've worked for and how they push you to do, you know, a better job, you're you're basically you're honing your tools, right? If you're a food writer or if you're, you know, whatever, you're you're getting better and better at it. Well, Gawker, apparently a new Gawker, there was like an enemies list. These are the people we want to always write about in negative ways. And if the if you're a young writer or any or not a young writer and you're you're your the 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 tool that you're honing is um basically bringing your enemies down or the enemies of the publication perceived enemies 
Well, that's what you're learning how to do, right? You're, you're just, I always use the analogy of like soccer. Like if you, if you practice playing soccer, you will become a better soccer player. If you practice journalism that brings other people down, that's what you're going to get good at. And maybe you're going to be able to tell yourself, well, this is journalism, but who are you, who are you enriching? It's almost like if you're a chef, you could make good food for people or you could make bad food for people. And I think that, 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 that Gawker is making a lot of bad food. And the latest example of this is, yes, a couple days ago, I guess they ran a piece on Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a friend of mine who I know personally, who apparently he put up a tweet and he's like, look, these guys have been just going after me for months, but I just ignored it until they ran a piece yesterday saying, I was at this Alex Jones event and I was not even there. Like I was not even where they said I was. So the entire article is, is prefaced on something that doesn't exist. There were a lot of like mistakes in it too, apparently saying that he was a professor at uh, University of Austin, is that what it's called? Um, yeah. and, and he's not. And he, it was a, well, of course, it was a very negative article. I didn't read it because, so this is the first thing they did when he complained. They put up an editor's note saying, oh, well, we learned that, you know, some of this reporting was erroneous. We regret the error. Here's the article. Well, by yesterday morning, it was completely gone. They had just taken the entire thing down. And he was considering suing them. He was considering saying, "You, this is defamation. And um, it's also based on basically no reporting at all. As I said, it's based on somebody saw a picture of him somewhere on Instagram and like created the story because it suited their idea of what they needed to do against Thomas Chatterton Williams on Gawker. I did see um, um, Jesse, why, why have I no, why do I have no names this morning? Jesse in my Singel. brain. Yes, Jesse Single. Everybody's last name today has gone out the window. Sorry, everyone. You're, I'll just call you all Smith. Jesse Smith. No, Jesse Single um, saying, look, the journalist made a mistake. Let's move on. But, you know, Gawker should be doing a better job than this. I got to tell you, I'm, and I, you know, he, Thomas was saying something about this on Twitter and Barry chimed in and said, you should. And someone came in and said, oh yeah, Barry, We're, what about free speech? And I'm like, you know what? Maybe you as a non-journalist do not understand the distinction between free speech, something you don't like, you don't like it, it makes you feel bad, it makes you look bad, and outright lying. There is a difference between these two things. Now, you can say it. I can say, hey, you know, uh, Sarah, I saw your mom turning tricks down at the 7-Eleven. I can say it, but there might be repercussions for me because I don't think that was your mother was actually doing that, right? So, was not. Uh, no, definitely not, nor mine. Um, I, I, uh, I would be interested. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And that would be pretty quick. You know, first it was 20, you know, 20 years of Gawker or whatever, 15 years of being able to survive being kind of snotty or snide, but funny and actually basing it on journalism. I don't think Gawker's doing that now. I think it is purely this sort of rancid exercise in being the kid that poops in the pool. And um, I, I ha would have, if I will be interested in following this story if it happens. We'll see.
I mean, I think one of the problems that's happening is that, especially at those sites, like you have to post so much, so many times a day. And the incentive to just play a little fast and loose with everything is so high. And so there's going to be a propensity for doing things like this. I believe the piece was written based on an Instagram story that the author had seen and misunderstood to be part of this event that happened in Austin. Um, Okay, well, does she does she have an editor? I mean, I wonder I, if those pieces are <clears throat> they might just be posted like blog posted posts. and then back read because yeah. uh, that was one of the things that we were doing at Salon at the time that we just got so fast. You know, there was a there was an in there was an incentive to be to be posting so quickly that things were going up before anybody had read them. And then, you know, we had one copy editor that was just all day, you know, playing whack-a-mole with stuff that had gone up on the site already. And, you know, I, I remember having, like, we had to take down a post from it. We had a young, we had a young writer that wrote about um, an event that It had happened like a year or two ago, but she got the dates wrong, thought it had just happened. Like, you know, just really sloppy errors that happen because you're just going so fast. Right. And that and that happens. Uh, And we've all, you know, made mistakes. I've like got an address of something wrong. You get a date wrong. And, you know, you you I get so many mistakes wrong. Can I just tell you, fact checkers save my hide all the time. Well, you're lucky that you work where That's there are the fact checkers. So I have a funny, a funny fact checking story. So I, I published with an imprint of Amazon. Of course, you can buy books on Amazon, but Amazon several years ago also became a publisher. They've got, last I checked, they had 16 different imprints. I, I published with an imprint called Little A, which is their literary imprint. And um, they, uh, it was headed up at the time by a guy that used to be at Harper's and they had a very, very, very intense fact-checking department, which is unusual now for nonfiction books. That you turn in your book, you are responsible as the author for hiring a fact-checker, which you will pay for and obviously you're going to get what you pay for. Well, I did not have to do that and I I didn't even know it was that unusual. It went through fact-checking. They checked I think it was 12,000 facts, 12,000, and came back with 2,000 questions that I just had to like- Oh my God. But, but I was a pretty, I was a pretty assiduous journalist when I was writing it. So like I knew, and I, God, you should see the, the organization I had for this book, 17 binders, all, col- I, I was pretty <sighs> organized. So I was able to answer them. But then like very, very quickly, like let's say I was supposed to say it was like 53 degrees, I accidentally like had 35 degrees and I was like, oh my God, so sorry. I transposed those numbers. And then like, there was another number issue. And then there was another number issue. And then there was another. So first I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Then I was horrified. Then I was laughing because I realized something I didn't know that I have some kind of numbers dyslexia where I flop numbers. I didn't even know it until this Fact checking. I mean, I was actually laughing by the end. It happened like 150 times. So, and I do it now. Like, if you tell me a phone number, like, I have to like write it down, look at it, read it back. And inevitably, there's one number I've, I've switched it. So, um, in any case, yeah, they saved my ass. They, I did get one thing wrong. I said something was running downstream. It was upstream because I'm a city girl and I don't realize what upstream mm-hmm. and downstream means. Anyway, they fixed it in the second edition. Um, yeah, we do make mistakes and that's fine. 
but we also need to have some basis besides somebody else's Instagram post for writing entire story. I'm sorry, you, you got to do a better job than that. And if they're not doing a better job than that at Gawker, who are, like, who are their readers? Who cares? Anyway, um, yeah, we, we kind of have another interesting uh, story we wanted to talk about where part of it is someone someone who maintains that the editor-in-chief of a very, very estimable, estimable publication that you may have heard of called The New Yorker, uh, this woman claims that out of spite and retaliation, editor-in-chief David Remnick deliberately inserted facts, wrong facts into her work in order to make her look bad. What do you, what do you think of that? Does that sound? Yeah, this is fascinating. And this, uh, lit up media Twitter this week. Wow. Um, I, I have, I have complicated thoughts about this. I, what I really feel like is that I'm missing pieces of this story in order to make it make sense in my head. But but let's go through what's going on here. Do you want me to start? Um, Give a little timeline or, or you want to do it? <clears throat> no, you, you can do it. Um, okay. Th- yeah. Okay. So a woman named Erin Overby who has been um, the archivist at The New Yorker since 1994. So she's about, By the you know, way, by yeah. the way, did I, what does an archivist do? Well, I guess you're keeping records of what's going on with, I, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't really know. I mean, an everyone archivist. Everyone keeps saying, like, it's really funny because everyone keeps being like, oh, the archivists are, I, I, am I the only one that was like, there are archivists at magazines. I have never worked at a magazine that is so fancy. It's had its own archivist. And my assumption is that she works in tandem with writers um, who are doing histories. And 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 she has like, I mean, okay. God, I would love to work with somebody Here like we this. Go. Anyway. Here's what the Google says. Archivists are especially trained in preserving the original material and helping people obtain it. Archivists work with paper documents, photographs, maps, films, and computer records. Many b- begin their career as historians and then attend classes to learn from experienced archivists. I know that my late stepfather, David Levine, the caricaturist for New York Books and a great painter, I'm sitting in his studio. I will, I'll post a picture of it later in our, in our episode notes. Guys, guys, if you don't know we have really great episode notes. I think they're really great. Sarah and I work on them and have a lot of fun with them. So if you're only listening to this podcast, you should click over and it'll take you down a lot of fun rabbit holes. There's always a lot of, um, a lot of video. And Sarah, what's the, what's the name of this podcast? This podcast is called Smoke Em If You Got Em. So I know that my late stepfather, David Levine, he had his work archived because he had like 50 years of drawings and we hi- he hired this guy and he he made everything like findable. In any case, this has been her job, Erin Overby's job since 1994. That's a long, long time to be at one job. Um, on the 19th, so a little over a week ago, she, um, she created a very long tweet thread, um, basically claiming uh, racism. Uh, at the publication at the New Yorker, and um, not you know opportunities that went to white men instead of X and Y and Z, and toward so, the go ahead. 
Well, I think that tweet thread was posted a year ago. Um, it was in 2021. And then a year later, she had a post that was really more about gender pay disparity. Oh, um, oh, okay. And- oh, okay. You, you, that, because I knew there was something from September of last year. I didn't, I mean, I read, I read the one from the 19th and I, I recall there was elements of racism in there. At mm-hmm. the paper. Yes. I think she does repeat um, some of the yeah. original claims. So right. this, you know, this whole thing launched in July or September of last um, year. And then the new one was July 19th, which was a week yeah, ago. Yeah. September, 2021 is the first one. And then a year later is July 19th. Right. She announces that she was placed on performance well, review. And the real bomb, it was almost like, hey, don't bury the lead, but she did. Um, don't bury the lead is a phrase like don't don't put the most important information like lower down in the article. We gotta know why we're here. Um and lead, just so you know, is spelled L-E-D-E because because journalists are weird. But anyway, um down to the bottom of the thread, she said and you know, they claimed that there were errors in my work and uh, they were put there by someone on staff. And the person who put them there was David Remnick. And the two things that she claimed that he put there was um, uh, getting the date of Janet Malcolm, the journalist Janet Malcolm, who wrote a lot for The New Yorker, getting the, the year of her date of her death wrong. And the other one was... I don't remember. Um, She blamed the inaccuracies on Remnick and said that he actually inserted them into her work. Now, Sarah Hepler, that to me sort of insinuates that there is a cabal up at the head of the, the, the sanctum sanctorum of the New Yorker of people that are, are there, uh, to make the decisions for the paper in secret that no one, you know, will really know about, including, including inserting errors into the work of a colleague in order to, I don't know, shuffle them along their way or make them look bad. What do you, what do you think of this concept? This is wild. So, you know, David Remnick, if you don't know, is the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, and he's really one of the most powerful people in publishing. He's been there for a very long time. Um, I don't I don't know him. I've never written for The New Yorker, um, and I don't have a lot of insight about how their inner workings of, of, the, of the place work. By the way, this woman, Erin Overby, she had been doing a newsletter. Um, that's why, you know, that's where he's inserting some of these mistakes. And, uh, you know, what, what do I think about this? So the first, when I heard this, I thought, well, that's, that's, that sounds preposterous. Um, but I don't know. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. I don't know enough to feel like I know what's going on here. Um, there was a, a piece in Politico that, uh, saw that, that some emails between her and David Remnick that 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 actually back up her story because he's 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 making some of these suggestions that end up in the in the story later. What the hell is going on here? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things you have, like I'm very I'm very torn here because on on 
on one hand, you have somebody who has come out and publicly made a lot of claims about the lack of representation at The New Yorker. She did it a year ago. You know, um, this some of these things are 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 probably I mean, I, I don't see any reason why not to think that they're true. Um, you know, there's there's some there's some really um, alarming. What do I want to say? Like, like if you want to go and check the diversity at a lot of these publications, um, a lot of them are going to come up lacking. Um, and and you know, how do you handle that? Well, I, I you know, is is that something you should go out on Twitter and then and then publicize the receipts for what's going on at your is this the way to do business let me just back up and ask that question meaning is the way to do business taking your grievances to twitter is that what you're saying well i will say when this um when this popped on the 19th or maybe it was the 20th i don't remember someone uh, texted me, is she the next, is she the next Felicia Sonmez? And Felicia Sonmez was the writer at the Washington Post who I've written about many times and take issue with on some of her claims, um, who took her grievances, uh, repeatedly, um, to Twitter about the Washington Post. And it became, it became so enormous, like absolutely over, we've, we've talked about this, absolutely overshadowing any work the Post was doing. And the Post eventually fired her. But, you know, it took a while. It took a while for, for them to just say, no, we're, we're not doing this. You cannot literally publicly, not just say, like, I have issues with maybe certain things, like absolutely bald-faced claims of what a terrible hellhole of racism and misogyny and danger and uncaringness and absolute imbalance of everything the place I work for is, including so bad that I will mow down the the executives and and my colleagues on Twitter, and I will do it repeatedly for weeks. And eventually, Washington Post showed her the door. And which I believe is the right decision, and I believe they should have done it sooner. And then, of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, Sonmez is like, "I'm working with the guild, the the you know the the union to get my job back." And I'm like, "If your place of, of employment was so bad, so so bad, and uncaring, and dangerous, and racist, and misogynistic, and you can't stand it, why are you asking for your job back?" Well, because who's going to hire her? Who is going to hire Felicia Sonmez when she, it's like, because you're, of course you will do this to your next employer. This is, this is what you know how to do. Um, So in any event, uh, Erin Overby has her tweet thread and um, she was fired on Monday. She was let go. Um, Now, I think the story is more interesting this. I also want to start something with something kind of funny and I'll, I'll put a link to it. So she started uh, last, uh, the, the tweet thread on the 19th saying that a male, co- she'd had some, I guess something she felt was kind of like successful and a male colleague said to her, now don't get cocky. 
And she was so appalled that she's like, never, never have I had someone say this to me. I can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe that a male colleague would say this to me. Well, it happens to be a line from Star Wars. Okay. It's what Han Solo says to Luke Skywalker when he does a good hit. And he's like, hey, kid, nice shot, but don't get cocky. It's like, it's, that's what it is. There's a billion memes about this. Well, clearly she didn't know this. And she took, you know, great offense at this. Uh, And said, everything in legacy media world is geared toward keeping the status quo. So I'd like to just read a couple of stats and then we'll, we'll continue on. Yeah, sure. The status quo right now in media world, as of 2016, they were the most recent um, recent stats I could find, is that it was 79% women, 79% white. She is a white woman. Um, in terms of published authors right now, 50.5% female, 49.5% male. And in general or literary fiction, 75% female. Now, that's... That- is the literary world, right? Right. Well, the New Yorker is kind of a literary publication. But I mean, that's the book world. Yeah, that's the book world. I'm just, well, she said, oh, so yes, you're right, right. So I'm saying legacy media. Um, but, But you know what? I don't have the stats for this. But in your experience at different publications, what would you, just totally spitballing, what would you say the gender balance is at publications, male to female? I don't know, like something like 50. I mean, it, it seems pretty even to me. Uh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe slightly more women. Maybe for, slightly in my more women, yeah. So I'm I'm unsure of why when she's saying it's everything in the legacy media world is geared toward keeping the status quo. Well, what's wrong with the status quo? If it's 50-50, why, what's, is that a problem? Well, she's she's speaking specifically about the New Yorker and you know one of the things about it's probably a place that changes very very infrequently Uh, I think one of the things they've done is to really shake up their online presence you know so they bring in lots of new writers in the online space but she's talking about the magazine in particular and because it's considered kind of the I don't know, creme de la creme of, of print magazines, if that matters anymore. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I will say that I found some of these statistics kind of fascinating. I mean, that she mentions that there's more profiles written by women in the first decade of their existence, which was 25 to 35, than there were published from 1990 to 2000. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the statistic that she, um, that was also kind of eye popping was that, that in the last 15 years, less than 0.01% of print features and critics pieces have ever been edited by a black editor. Um, well, okay, so that shows you that the New Yorker, at least historically, or I'm not exactly sure the year she's talking about, did not have black editors on staff. Okay, that can change. Um, you know, I, I'm not hiring at the New Yorker. I'm going to hire, you know, 
people that I think are great for the job. I don't know why they haven't had. Uh, I find it hard to believe in this particular media environment, in this climate, that you would have a, a head of staff executives that would be foot stomping about, we are not hiring people of color. We are absolutely no, not doing that. No, I don't think that. anybody's doing that. I think what they're not doing is making a premium on, you know, we have to hire somebody of color. And I think that's where the dividing line is here. And I think that's what this argument is about over at The New Yorker, you know, is 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 that they're the people that are that are making decisions over at The New Yorker are not premising um, it needs to be a, quote, diversity hire. And I think there's an argument about whether or not it should be like that. I think she's making the argument that how can you be, you know, how can you be a, a you know, win Pulitzers and 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 be this kind of banner publication and not have a diverse staff that represents the country? OK, that's a valid claim, right? A hundred percent. And it's, also, it's, I will argue that for for decades, the New Yorker was Definitely to the manner born. Oh, no doubt. You know, you and it always you, has been. And it always yeah, has been. I know. And so it is. And so, you know, things will change quickly or slowly or not at all. And new publications will come up where that is definitely just the normal thing is to have all kinds of people. And that's great and awesome. So the New Yorker is like a creaky old magazine that's got to kind of get with the program. It it is to a certain extent. You said they're hiring a lot of people, you know, that are y- younger people. I'm sure it's more diverse uh, to publish things online. It is the on- yeah, the online presence is is more diverse. It's a little bit more like lively. Um, I end up reading younger. I think, more I'm sure. On- you know, yeah, on the on the on the I, I read more on the online publication than I do in the magazine. I mean, I have to be honest. I think the New Yorker magazine could do with a lot of shaking up. It, it could. Got I, some I dead, have to say, like, I, it does. I stopped. I stopped uh, subscribing to it. Yeah, because each week I would look at it and be like, this is a compendium of stories of long stories about things I wasn't thinking about. Interesting. OK, but I want to I want to kind of back up here a little bit. So, because it ties into something that I read in the Daily Beast. So she absolutely can have these concerns, but the latest tweet thread, the one from last week, was the whole thing with like the cocky. And she was also, here is a, here is, she was very upset because she was asked to assist, in quotes, the the male colleague appointed to lead on a project. Okay, so she's the archivist for since 1994. There's some sort of project. I don't know what it is. Someone else is put in charge of leading that project, which makes sense because you've got lots of different projects. You can't be the lead on every project. And she was asked to help him. Now, I'm going to assume she was asked to help because she was there since 1994. And she probably knows a lot of things, right? But she is pissed that she was asked to help a male. And I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you guys all on the same team? I mean, Sarah, if we were doing something and I, and and you were asked to help me, would you be pissed off about it? Well, there's some of this stuff in these tweet threads that I don't quite understand. And one of them is in fact, this moment where she's asked to quote, assist a male colleague 
and she seems to take umbrage at this word assist. Well, I, I just, I, I don't know enough about the power dynamics of how this is supposed to work. I don't, you know, there, there is in that particular thread, there is a gender lens placed over everything that basically takes umbrage um, at, at words that, that might, be offensive or might not, depending. This is just, this is not a lens that I use as I move through the world. There is just, and and whether this is, this is useful, like there are younger generations that going to, are going to think that this is, this is my ignorance and this is my, you know, internalized misogyny. And I'm going to say, you know, I don't find it useful. I don't find it useful to go through the world and see, you know, that they, they told me I couldn't do this. It's because I'm a woman. Um, oh, my God. I, I've said this before. I had an editor, Tom Christie, good friend of mine at LA Weekly. And he said to me once, Nancy, do you do you think there are stories that you have not gotten because you were a woman? And I was like, well, first of all, I would have no way of knowing that, right? If I didn't no. get a story, I would know. I said, but I'm going to tell you what. There are stories I definitely have gotten because I was a woman. I, there's no doubt, no doubt in my mind. So in a good way, because I, or also, I guess, because I was Nancy Rommelman, like, you know, I, or Nancy Ann Rommelman, um, because I would be the right person for that story. Yes, I definitely do not see the world through the lens of, of gender either at all. I, I, I also do not find it useful or interesting. But then again, you know, hashtag we love men. So, um, so... There's a quote here. So, you know, this, she got fired. And of course, it's a media story. The New Yorker is the New Yorker. And, you know, the Daily Beast wrote about it in Politico. And I, the Daily Beast, that I've had problems with their stuff, but I thought it was a pretty good piece. It's pretty calm, pretty comprehensive. And there were a bunch of quotes. Now, again, let's remember, she's been there since 1994. Any job that you've been there for that amount of time, the job's going to change. People are going to change. The world's going to change. Technology is going to change. There will be changes and you're either going to be excited about those changes and roll with them or you're not, or you're going to push back or whatever. But this was a quote from the Daily Beast article. The staffers further claimed that Overby's grievances with the New Yorker began years ago when she grew frustrated with changes to the management structure of the archive and was concerned about losing power over her, in quotes, fiefdom. Okay. So she has been the head of something. She's now, she's got to be close to my age, right? I mean, if she's been there since 1994, she's going to be in her fifties. There's, there's no, Mm -hmm. she can't be younger than that. And, you know, people come up, people, I remember meeting, I was like, kind of like a superstar at, at, well, sorry to say this, but I, I was kind of like, doing a lot of stories for the LA Weekly, right? And I remember there's like this young guy that came in. All of a sudden, he it wasn't that he was eating my lunch, but he was definitely getting, you know, a lot of attention. And my first thing was like, well, wait a second. Then I was like, no, it was awesome. And he was an awesome guy. But I can see, you know, at a certain point feeling like I'm not the big maha here anymore. And um, someone further said, I think it was in that same article, a uh, couple of things that she had been dinged several times for self-plagiarism, which is an interesting... Okay. So I heard Jesse uh, Single and Katie Herzog talking about something one time in self-plagiarism. And Katie said something that I had the exact same thing happen when I was a young journalist. I'd written an article, let's say I wrote an article about eggs, right? Then I was writing another article about eggs. And I took like a sentence I'd had in my old article and put it in there because it was so... And Katie had said she did... And you don't realize that you're not allowed to do that. Like you can't... 
do that. You can't, even if it's your own work, you can't self-plagiarize. Who? Well, I, mean, I, I don't understand this. Well, I actually, I, I, I you have You push back on this, huh? All I right. am going to push do back it, on this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things about this story that I think are not quite clear. You They're know? not, for, um, sure. for I, sure. I actually, like, I felt like the Felicia Sonmez story was a little bit more clear in the sense of like, this is a problem and this person needs to go. This New Yorker story, I have some questions. I mean, I, I just, I don't quite get the a handle on what's going on. What I can tell you is that I think it's, I think it's probably inadvisable to to blast your own boss on Twitter I, as a general <laughs> you rule. You think? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think I think if you if you drop bombs about the mo- one of the most powerful, you know, uh, editors in publishing inserting errors into your newsletter, I you better hope you're right because otherwise, what the hell's going to happen? But um, to this, they accuse her of self plagiarism. Now, well, they. I guess the magazine had, I, I, this is one of the things that they've said in one of her performance reviews was that she had self plagiarized. Now I just want to push back on this. I, I, if this is a sin, I, I don't know how many people need to turn in their credentials. I mean, come on, like between all the different platforms, like things you say on Twitter, plus things you say in your pieces or like, you know, I just wrote a piece that was about uh, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. A lot of the language is taken from the podcast. This is not self-plagiarism. This is the same story in a different, in a different um, format. And, you know, by the way, people repeat themselves all the time. Sometimes you unconsciously do repeat your own uh, phrase, like jokes or whatever, you know, like, like you are guilty of self-plagiarizing axiomatically. <laughs> That's going to be a week. Like, oh, I think I'll talk about some swag at the end of the, uh, at the end of the episode. But um, I have to say, I'm pretty assiduous about First of all, when I'm speaking, I'll say, as I've said before, or as I've written before, um, or I will do it in an article. If I'm, if I've like written about this exact thing before, and I'm kind of using the same language, I will say, as I wrote in such and such, I don't know if I put it in quotes, but I do try to, I do try to say, this isn't my fresh thought I just had just now, because that does actually feel a little icky to me. Now, you're absolutely right in terms of cross-platforms. Like, for instance, we're doing this here. People are going to listen to it on Substack, but it's also going to be on Apple Podcasts, and I'm probably going to put it, oh, guys, break for a second, on palomamedia.com, which has a brand new design, and it looks like total hot shit, and you should go over to palomamedia.com and subscribe and also become a Patreon member because that's how this stuff works. But anyway, I will double, I will, you know, I will I will, as Nick Gillespie at Reason says, we use every part of the buffalo. Like you're going to like get other work out of the work. However, however, getting back to Erin Overby, um, somebody claimed that her diversity tweets from last September, you were correct in saying that's when she started the diversity tweets, were, in quotes, a foil for her poor performance. Now, this, okay, you, you should, you should, you should, you should interviewer and basically find out because you have the questions. I am the cynic because I have seen, oh my God, I have seen so many people in the past couple of years, whether it's in media, whether it's in my personal world, claim something 
but it's really about something else. And I that- completely see that. I completely yeah. see yeah. that pattern as well. I'm just very reluctant to ascribe any kind of intention to someone I don't know. Like, I don't know this person. I don't know how, like, I have no idea why they up and decided to do a tweet. Uh, if, if you were concerned about your own performance at a publication, why would you up and, and insult the magazine? Because you're not, getting, you're not getting the results you want by continually having the meeting, or maybe you thought you were going to try to do better, or maybe you like, look, that wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault, and I really want to talk about it. And you know what? At a certain point, as my dad used to say, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, and the wheel that squeaks too much gets replaced. And it may be the case, we don't know, that she was squeaking too much. And then she's like, I'm not getting, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go out. I mean, she has to, look, people like Asonmez and maybe Overby, I have no idea, they believe that they will be seen as heroic for exposing the inequities where they work. And they are. And go they look, are. And they go. are. There Absolutely. are plenty oh of my people. God. Or that, fire, girl, um, fire, you know, yeah, flame, that have flame. applauded um, her exposing uh, what is, I think, a dirty little secret. I, I mean, I do, I do think it's interesting that in the last years, um, as a lot of these publications have made their bones on talking about lack of diversity and other in other parts of culture, they fail to disclose the extent to which it's it's largely a, not a diverse, um, you know, industry. No, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I, you know, it's something that I I've, I've watched publications try to to address. And um, you know, there's there's a bit of a pipeline problem. There's a bit of like in general, I think journalism has become too much of an elite profession. I think a lot of these these kids are coming out of like really high uh, you know, expensive grad programs in New York that are very difficult to to afford. And then they go into the internship programs at these magazines in New York. They come up through there. I mean, I don't think, I don't know that I could get into journalism at this time. So there's all sorts of problems in journalism that, you know, I'm sort of like, yeah, I'm open to talking about that. I just, you know, I don't, again, I don't think you blast your, your own, your own, um, employer on Twitter. Look, she's, let's say she's in her fifties. She's not getting what she wants. And there is going to be a moment. She is going to have her moment in the sun. And she did. If literally go, go over to her, her, her uh, Twitter feed, you will see the thousands of people supporting her, just like they supported Sonmez when Sonmez had her initial run in with the Kobe Bryant tweet. I've written about that. We'll put a link to it. I mean, we're talking like tens of thousands of people supporting her, uh, and then, you know, then she took to doing it again and maybe there were a few fewer supporters. And then again, it's like, I'm now feeling a little queasy. I now feel like I supported you because I believed you had the right to do this. And now when she's, you know, mowing down her colleagues, people didn't feel, feel so good about it. In any case, it was the case that Overby was fired on Monday. That was pretty quick. Now, again, the problems could have been germinating for a while, but her publicly taking to task, they they decided to do it pretty quickly, much quicker than the Washington Post did with Felicia Sonmez. And, and you and I spoke about it. I think we are starting to see a trend 
Uh, obviously, we still see publications or organizations that quake in their boots when, you know, an employee is going to say something that makes them look like they might not have equity and we are, we're so sorry and we're going to do these things and we're going to make it right. But there are other places that are like, no, you need to go. You need to go this because what you're doing has nothing to do with your mission. What you're what you're doing is you are uh, you're kind of wholesale strafing the arena in a sense. You're not. If she was really, 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 truly concerned only with making the New Yorker a more equitable place, you put your nose to the grindstone, you work from within, and you try to build systems that will make that happen. Yeah, she may not have felt like she could have done that. But I mean, you know, like, well, I don't know, this is just a difference between me and this, the, the activist class, you know, like this is, I, 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 I am more of a change what you can yourself and through personal relationships and, and connections and your own work. And there's this whole other class of people that, that want to a- address the, the systemic power structures. And, I and also they want instant justice. I know. I know. That's the other thing. That's the other thing is like, okay, well, what are you supposed to do? Start hiring people because there was a tweet thread, you know, like, no. So we have a couple of other stories. Now I know you wanted to talk about something going on in Texas. I have a couple of quick stories I can maybe run through. We talked a little bit about, about where people believed that they were going to be getting the kind of justice they feel the world should have and how this sort of blew up terribly in their faces. Do you want to skip this and go right on to uh, your Texas? Uh, no, I don't. I, don't I, I was going to talk about abortion in Texas because uh, I wanted to know what things were like after Roe was overturned, but I ended up just confusing myself because, uh, you know, the laws are actually just really confusing and it's very stressful. And I don't know that it's really anything that uh, I, I have much to add much in, insight about. You know, I, I ended up reading a lot of stories that were, that, you know, we're still sort of operating in a little bit of, of darkness. So, so no, just skip that. Um, uh, so just, these are quick and I, and I, I, I can kind of sound complainy and I don't want to, but I, I think I'm seeing a little bit of a trend here. I think, I think we're seeing a little bit of a trend where people are like, we're just not going to, we're going to make the changes we think are right, not because you're trying to hold us hostage. And I'll I'll just do it very quick. This is kind of an old story. It's from last month and Blocked and Reported did a great episode on it. But there was a cafe in Philadelphia called Mina's World. And it was really, it was queer owned and it was very, very much lauded like by Eater, uh, which can sometimes be a good site, sometimes not. Um, And by Bon Appetit as a place that was like super inclusive. And it was very, very... um, you know, it was kind of doing all the things right that people wanted it to do right. And one of the owners was a trans gal, Kate Egghart, and uh, they were, you know, running their cafe, coffee shop, doing great. Well, the employees um, decided that because it was in an area of Philadelphia, which was historically black, and and the owners, one was uh, a woman of color, uh, the, the trans gal was white, though her mother, I believe, is Filipina immigrant. They were accused of gentrification. And um, they came out with a worker statement. uh, And they had a lot of demands. uh, And very quickly, those demands turned into they wanted the owners, uh, these two people that ran the cafe, to turn the business over to the workers. Um, And the workers... It's an incredible video. It is truly like a hostage video. They they agreed to do that or to try to. But here was the issue. 
the building was owned by Egghart's mother, who was a self-made entrepreneur and uh, an immigrant. And they, she was being slagged in the press. And she said, you know what? I'm selling the building. And they were, the workers were absolutely up in arms and said that she was selling the building in retaliation for the workers collectivizing. Well, no, this woman comes to this country. She works hard. She puts the business up for sale for $425,000, which is a pretty good price for a building in Philadelphia. Um, and the workers go and they start a GoFundMe because they believe that they're right and they believe that they are going to have the support of the community. And they go on and they say, we're going to raise $200,000 and then we're going to buy the building. They've raised $11,000 so far. So there is a certain, in my opinion, a certain benightedness, usually from very, very young people who believe in certain what we might call or what they might call noble goals of equity and inclusion and diversion, diversity and security and, you know, and, and making this world a better place or remaking the world in the vision that they want it to be. And that is, you know what, since time immemorial, this is what young people do. And sometimes they succeed in remaking the world. The world will change. However, the one thing that young people do not have is they do not have experience. And they don't actually understand yet that when you work extremely hard for many decades, and one of the things you do, let's say, is go into real estate and you buy a building, just because you believe you should have the building because you have noble goals does not mean you are going to get the building turned over to you. Nor is there any way, there very few people in this world would do that. And yet to have to say, well, the only reason she's doing that, she's selling it is because is in retaliation. It's like, no, it's business kids. And when you are a little older and you actually, you know, maybe have worked for 10 years or 20 years to do something and your employees or your, your daughter's employees come to you and make a demand, like there's always public manifestos that you can go, you can go and see them They're there. And they always look the same. They always look the same because you write a manifesto doesn't really have any impact. Well, I may think it was interesting or sad or touching or whatever, but that's not how you change the world. You change the world again, sort of in line with what I was saying, if you really want to make changes, you have to put your nose to the grindstone and you have to work to make changes. You don't just tell people who you perceive to be in power that they need to get out. You don't in Portland just keep burning down buildings because you want your message to get across, but really you've built nothing. You need to have better and more mature tools. And that is what, uh, in this particular case, they certainly don't have yet. And in another case that I'm going to mention, I'll do it super quick. And this was way more recent, did take place in Portland, Oregon, actually took place five blocks from one of the cafes my, my husband used to own. Um, a lesbian bar named Doc Marie opened on July 1st. And apparently it was like a big, it was a big deal. You have a, you know, it's Portland's a very, very young town, definitely massive, lesbian world. It's, you know, it was a big deal to have, because, you know, I think Katie Herzog has, has, had wrote a piece for the stranger years ago, like where have all the lesbian bars gone? You know, they right, just, right, they, right. they aren't. And it's like someplace like there was people like super excited that this like, was yes. opening, right? It's like, yay. And there's like pictures and there was like a festival and I think it was pride week. And it was like, it was a big deal. Well, that was on July 1st. Uh, within days, um, the employees and others complained that it was not inclusive enough and that culturally inappropriate art had been hung 
And they wrote a manifesto, just like they did at Minas, and a list of demands. And that those demands included that the business be turned over to them within 24 hours. Okay, now. Where do they get this idea? I, I will tell you, as the wife of a small business owner uh, who opened six or seven cafes, I will tell you it is a years long process. You got to go get permits. You've got to get buildings done. You've got to sign leases. You've got to have lawyers. You've got to buy equipment. You've got to get workman's comp. It is a, it is a very, very long process to open a business in Portland, Oregon. And even on the low end, it's going to cost you $100,000. That That's low. I mean, they, they cost more. But they, even if they did it on the super cheap and they had like a landlord, because you usually get like a three-month rent abatement, you're going to be socking five, six more figures in there. Within 24 hours, the, the, the work, I, we want it. You need to turn it over to us. So what happened? It closed on the 6th, opened on the 1st, closed on the 6th. That's pretty fast. That is why I say I think we're seeing in some cases, and if any place, Portland should be the understanding place. And in fact, the owners did come out on their, inst- in their Instagram saying, oh, we're listening. We hear you. We hear your demands. We'll try to do better. But nothing happened. It closed because you can't. You can't take a $100,000 investment and turn it over to people. Where are you going to? You were opening a business in order to make money. Now your business is closed. You're just li- literally supposed to walk away from this. So it closed. So in any case, could this be a trend where people are just like, I'm not, I'm not even going to play ball here. We, we're going to either go out of business or we're going to sell the business and, and you got to just go someplace else with your demands. Or well, learn that that's not so how the world works. I mean, so many of these stories turn into these circular firing squads. And this is a problem where like uh, so many of these people involved seem to just, you know, that old saying of like, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, and it's just, you're, you're just doing that like to, to the point of destruction and um, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to watch it happen. It kind of reminds me a little bit too of what you were saying about um, Gawker. If you, mm-hmm. you know, are just sort of, you are just sort of circulating negativity into the world. Well, I don't know. I think you're going to go out of business. I think that people just right, don't want to see you. it or you're going to, and I, and I think that, you know, these, I mean, think about it. Okay, Sarah, let's say you and I, we open a lesbian bar and we work and $100,000. Please. I know. This is actually, this whole thing is a ruse. We actually are this just- This has been the long getting, con. That's right. It's the long con, guys. We are going to, and what are we going to call it? We're going to call it- we're gonna Smoke them if you got them. There we go. Right. So we're going to open it and we, you know, we maybe we take out a second mortgage or we get a loan or we get a family loan or whatever. We all are actually all our smoke them if you got them money. We put it into a business. And we we hopefully hire people that we think are going to be awesome. And if we do, you know what? They bring their energies and their ideas and their dedication to the business and we build something beautiful for the community. That's what that's what's possible. And I just think we are we are not we are not seeing this. And I wonder, I wonder why. I mean, it would never have occurred to me when I was working for other people to either A, oh my God, go on and start slagging my boss publicly or B, like when I was catering or anything to like, to demand that they turn the business over to me. Like I, I, I. Well, that's the one that just absolutely uh, flips my brain. I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. What in the culture is telling 
and I'm, I'm sorry, it, it's young people mostly. What in the culture is telling young people that this is, this is the way to get ahead? This is or, or is it just a, about, or is it just an appetite for destruction? Because I can't believe they actually think they're going to. Is is there instead of like working hard and like showing up, is there some sort of satisfaction in seeing, in seeing the bosses brought down? I, I, this is. I can't get my head around. Like, is this a small number of niche? Um you know, anarchic, um, kind of, uh, out, out, like out of touch kind of like activist types that are doing this, or is this more widespread than that? Like I, you know, like young people don't really think people are going to turn their business over to them. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, maybe it's, these are the only the stories uh, we hear. I mean, I can, I, you know, you know, my husband's business was put out of business essentially by people that, you know, took great satisfaction, great satisfaction in seeing this happen. Mm -hmm. It was delightful. Um, You know, it happens. Um, Okay. Uh, I did have a question for you, Sarah Hepla. What is the question? What's in your hot box? Oh, also I, I got it. I got to say, first of all, listeners, we love you. We love you so much. And I love, so we, our last episode was a paywalled episode, which guys we're, we're going to be doing more of. So like literally you got to start, you got to pony up, right? As, as they would say on the fifth column, stop being cheap steaks. Cheap what? Cheap something? Um, keep cheap plates. Um, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to be uh, putting up more paywall stuff. So get in there now while you can. But anyway, we, we introduced a new feature last week called the hot box and we're going to be talking about what the hot box is, but someone's wrote in and said, I thought it was, you were going to be talking about what made you hot, <laughs> meaning horny. <laughs> that does. I and mean, that is what it sounds like. Honestly, what's, what's in, in your hot box? What's in your like, hot box? Anyway. Yeah, it's such a, like, it's such a questionable way to frame yeah. this that well, I'm completely yeah, standing behind. You know, we're like, just, I, I, yeah, we're I will. So, you know, uh, yeah. So what, what's in your hot box, Sarah? What's in my hot box? I do Please have say. something in my hot box yeah, and it might be controversial because I don't even know that you like <laughs> this person, but I have been watching the new Nathan Fielder show on HBO called The Rehearsal. Now, Nathan Fielder is a kind of, uh, critical darling comedian um you know he had a cult success with a show called nathan for you which was on comedy central several years ago and this is something i found after it it was off the air like i only started watching it more recently because people were talking about it and it's basically like a send up of reality shows where he goes in and tries to fix businesses but he has really bad ideas <laughs> it's sort of like a those restaurant shows like uh yes uh, like kitchen Gordon, nightmares Gordon ramsay would go in and try to fix the restaurant and you knew that as soon as he left it was going to fall apart again <laughs> but Anyway. Yeah. 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 And so, so some of these are extremely funny, like they're uneven, but there is like, I was just watching again. Like he does this one prank. It's very early in the first season where he does this one prank where, um, he 
goes in. He decides that you can get a job based on confidence. He's trying to show somebody that you can get a job based on confidence only. So he goes into a job interview and he is hooked up to um, like a earpiece where a seven-year-old boy is telling him the answers to these questions. Oh my God. But doesn't really know the answers. Doesn't know at all. And it is the (laughs) funniest thing. I cannot watch this and not laugh because the the woman who's interviewing her, she's like at some, it's like some like, I don't know, bank firm or something like that. She's straight, completely straight. She's like, why would you like to have this job? And then you watch the little like seven-year-old in the booth, like listening. And he goes like... Because it runs the bad guys out of town or something like that. And then Nathan Fielder completely seriously just goes, because it runs the bad guys out of town. Sarah, are you going to find a clip? Are you going to find a YouTube clip of this? Oh, yeah. yeah, This thing, it makes me giggle so much every time. Okay, so... I did send this at one point. I, I I told Nancy that I wanted to write about this and she saw like five minutes of one clip and was like, I hate this sometimes. I, 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 okay. First of all, I'm going to like that a lot. But whatever I watch, he was also on the cover of New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago, which I get New York Magazine, the actual magazine. Um, and I was like, I don't understand this. And I, it was so annoying. But I'm going to admit that I think I was wrong there because that sounds very funny. There's a lot of really funny stuff. And part of the marvel of it is watching him, his sort of straight delivery. Like he's just incredibly disciplined about how he manages this. And unlike, this has a lot in common with say like a Borat. Unlike Borat, I never felt like the people that he's with are made to look like fools. I think what he shows more often is how good natured people are. Mm. You know, that's nice. That's good. And like, they're just, it's it's very, I found it to be a much sweeter show than, than, than the Sasha Baron Cohen stuff. Okay. So he's got a new show on HBO. It's called The Rehearsal. It is, I don't even know how to explain what this show is, except that let's just take the first episode. Um, he meets somebody. He finds these people on Craigslist. And he finds a guy that is has been living with something he's wanted to do for a long time, which is to tell some of his friends from his trivia team that he actually doesn't have a master's degree. This is something he's just been living a lie for a long time. And so what Nathan is going to do is to help him rehearse this so that he can be comfortable with it by the time it happens in real life. And so, but what is so amazing about this is the extent to which they have gone through, like they've built a life-size model of the bar that he's going to do it in, and they've hired actors to come in and reenact. And in in fact, I, I don't want to say anymore. It's just, it's the, it's, you've never seen a show like this. And I'm going to tell you, it's not as funny as Nathan for you because it's not built on that kind of like it's it's not it's not a laugh like it's not going necessarily for laughs laughs it's this almost contemplative thing about why it is we do what we do how we live in our own minds um what reality and perception is i found it like as i was watching it I was just kind of like, this is the trippiest show that made me wonder, like, if I would go back and forth and be like, 
why are we building these elaborate sets for this stupid prank? Because they build all sorts of stuff. And then I was sort of like, why do we build elaborate sets for shows in general? And why do we want to live our lot? Like, like I was questioning the nature of entertainment as I was watching it. And there's something just very singular about this show. Um, then the, and I remember thinking at the time, this is such a show that would be written by a mid 30 something, because a lot of it was about like not knowing how to live your life, like where to go in your life. And I thought like, this is somebody that's trying to decide whether to have children and trying to decide whether to have, to get married, because there was a lot of it that was about like the two tracks of your life. And then sure enough, as you get into the second episode, there is a whole experiment around a, uh, a woman that hasn't ha- ever had children She's never been married. She wants to have children. And so they they concoct this absolutely crazy scheme to uh, let her have children. And because of the they, they, they give her other people are like giving her their babies that she takes care of, but it can only be for four hours at a time. So they have to switch the babies out. And then there's a robotic baby at night. So that that, that is oh it, it's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing. And I don't know how to uh, describe it. And I'm not even convinced I like it yet, except that I am I'm very pulled in by it and I'm fascinated by it. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. That baby is that's that's pretty nutty to just because I think there is some sort of like when you are pregnant, you know, you kind of it's almost like you're you're gearing yourself up to have this yes. baby as opposed to just like being given the baby. And, um, you know, this is going to be taking place over the course of a, a few episodes, apparently, if not the rest of the season, even though the first one was a discrete episode. This one now seems to be like it's going to to keep going. But the baby's going to grow up over the years. Oh, God, no, like, no, like no, she, no, no. Like, they're, like they're, it's going to go from so that she can see the whole she can have the whole rehearsal experience of being a mother. So it's right now she's in baby time and then it's going to go to toddler and then eventually teenager. I mean, I don't what the hell is going on? Not in real time, though. We're just like next next episode. It'll be a to- it'll be toddlers. Something like that. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, well, I have something kind of interesting in my hot box, and it will be also. Um, there's a question associated with this. So, we're up here in upstate New York. I'm here with Matt Welch, who uh, helped form Paloma Media with me, friend of mine for 20 years, and Matt is a baseball fanatic, and he had never gone to the. Um, the Baseball Hall of Fame inductions in Cooperstown, which is about an, two hours from here, a little more, two and a half hours. So it was last week. So we decided to go on Sunday. We drove up there and we picked up, we, we passed this like super junky yard sale on the way. We grabbed two $5 lawn chairs. We sat on this terrace, you know, hill with 40,000 other people. And I got to tell you, we did, we did a YouTube about it yesterday uh, and I will link it here this was an incredibly moving and interesting experience for me as someone who likes baseball, not, you know, not a huge baseball head, don't really know that much about it, but to see the seven people that were inducted, including three that have been dead a long time, including one that was born in 1854, ones that played in the Negro leagues and to have their like representatives up there, whether it was like a grand niece or a widow or Sarah, when they say that, you know, baseball is America's sport, and you realize 
what baseball has given to these people, what they gave to baseball, what grew out of it, how we become part of it, what different legacies there are, how I'll give you just one example. So Gil Hodges, Gil Hodges was a player for the Dodgers in the forties. He played one game with the Dodgers and then signed up to be drafted for world war II. served in the Pacific was in Okinawa. He, while he was there, they were just terrified, terrified children, obviously. And he and other, some of the other uh, GIs taught them how to play baseball, which is just a beautiful thing. He comes back. He's with the Dodgers again. Who who also is on the, jo- the Dodgers? Jackie Robinson, who obviously is the first black in the, in the major leagues, right? And he deals with the most absolutely disgusting project. It, the, the things that some of these players went through are so disgusting. You are just... You just cannot believe, and not from the fans. The Brooklyn Dodgers, the fans love Jackie Robinson because, first of all, Brooklyn is a giant melting pot of everything, right? They loved him, but it was the other teams, right? So one time, Mm. apparently, in the dugout, the other team is giving Jackie Robinson shit, who's this honorable, amazing player. And Gil Hodges, who's white guy, gets up and he goes over and he's like, you got a problem here? You're going to take it up with me. You're going to come out on the field right now. And they all shut the hell up. Anyway, he was a beautiful man. His daughter was up there. And they talked for like a long time. I was so incredibly moved. Then they had Dave Ortiz. A lot of people probably know him. Big Poppy. Big Poppy, if you've watched Saturday Night Live, you'd seen Keenan Thompson when he's doing like the uh, weekend update. It's a oh, Big Poppy. You're going to have a big Dominican lunch. It's going to be a momofungo. Anyway, they've got that playing. And then Dave Ortiz is there. And then Dave Ortiz came up and he spoke. And he talked about like one of the things that has happened during his career. He's retired now. He started a, a children's hospital where they do heart surgery on children. And it's like, it's just was this way. Everybody was, was happy. There were families. There were a lot of Dominicans. Nobody was drunk. It was like so beautiful. Mm. And my question, after I was watching Gil Hodge's daughter, I said to Matt, I was like, Matt, I really want to read a book about Gil Hodges. And he's like, well, I think one came out. He's like, but what you should read is The Boys of Summer, which I've even heard of, which is a big book. But I, and I think I'm going to get it, but I'm going to challenge or ask my listeners, our listeners here, if you know of a great baseball book for me, I will be interested in reading it. So, you know, put your, put your suggestions in the show notes. Um, so that's- Have you ever read the first 50 pages of Don DeLillo's uh, Underworld? I, you know, probably the first 50 pages and not the rest, to tell you the truth. But is it about, it's about New York, yes. It's and about a Yankees game, and I forget who they're playing, unfortunately. Okay. I'm really bad okay. with this. But it's a famous game because they, okay. uh, and and it is uh, one of the most exceptional pieces of writing. And and yeah. I don't even, I don't care about baseball. And I absolutely love the opening of that book. I actually right. also really love that book. I, I love that book. I should go back to um, DeLillo. I'm a, I'm a fan. I haven't read him in a number of years. Did you know um, there's going to be a white noise Um White Noise oh. is becoming a movie with Noah Baumbach is directing it, and Adam Driver is playing oh, the lead. Okay. Love okay. that. Okay. Adam okay. Driver. No one, love no woman does Driver. not love. And sorry, you want to know what gets us hot? Adam Driver gets me hot. Okay. What is it? I did. Ju- what I'm is gl- it? Okay. First of all, let's talk about it. He's got He's what they call like that a dirty sex that, thing. That Jolie Lod thing. It's like ugly, beautiful. Like you look at it. He's yep, got. That's He's it. also. He was a Marine. All right. Yeah, he's a Marie. Yeah, Paris, he's got like uh, a lot, he's got like a lot of masculine energy, but he has Sarah. a tenderness. Sarah. And I think 
I think it's that like that sense of like high emotional IQ with like strength. Big. Okay. I have a, I have a, remember I keep trying to find that, um, that, uh, uh, Liz Fair quote. Yeah. That I was about men and vulnerability. Check this out. This was actually the quote. I want you to hear how I, wrong I got everything, but it kind of ties in with what's saying about Adam Driver. So there was a line in her song and it said, oh, if you would give me your protection instead of giving me so much space. So there was a line in the song and I heard the song. It's like, wow. And then she breaks out to talk. It was in this thing called... Um, I'll put a link to it. I can't remember the name. It's this little, uh, this thing during she did during the pandemic. She'd play a song and then she'd talk about her life. And that line stuck out with me song. And then she, this is what she said. I wrote it down. She's like, it was hard for me to admit. It was harder for me to admit than any of the sexy, racy, blue, explicit lyrics. When, when, when I'm being sexually bravado, Liz, it's fun. Sex has been a mostly good experience for me, and I'm not fearful for it, and I'm not embarrassed about it. But I am embarrassed about my own vulnerability, my own need about things I'm not sure intellectually I should need. For a man to protect me, that's actually what I want. And I got to tell you, it's what I want, too. Um, I, my daughter and I have talked about many times, doesn't mean it's the only thing I want, but my daughter and I have spoken many times. He's got to make me feel safe. I got to feel safe. If I don't feel safe, I can't, I can't do it. And, um, I don't know if that Adam driver especially makes me feel safe, but he does look like if the shit was going down, he would freaking clock that person and you would be fine. So. Well, he's got it going on. I am excited about that white noise. Uh, I yeah. love that yeah. book. I love that book too. Wonderful book. I've read that a few times. Um, um, so can I ask a favor of our yeah. lovely listeners? Yes, I please. would love them to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts because it's, uh, you know, it's very quick and easy to do. And it's the kind of thing that like I used to hear and be like, yeah, 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 whatever. But it really makes a difference in the searches. Um, you know, I, I think if, if you read on Substack, it might be easy to, or if you listen to this through Substack, maybe go over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. Um, you know, it's, it's just a neighborly thing to do. It's so funny because you're absolutely right. Like at the, at the, at the front end of every podcast, people are like, go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I, like, I didn't even know that we were being rated at all. I, I don't, I, I think it was my friend Yael that told me, she's like, oh, look, you've got like 25 rate. I was like, I did? Like, I didn't even go look, but yeah, that would be great if you could do that because we're trying to grow this little baby, uh, push her out the door. So um, yeah, go rate and review, subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe. Please get a paid subscription if you can. Help us keep uh, doing this work for you. And um Sarah Hepla, I hope you have a lovely summer day. And I wish the same for you, Nancy Ann Rommelman. Okay, bye. Bye.